0: Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor of the Bill Simmons podcast and our Channel 33 podcast, as well as our favorite app for buying and selling tickets for sports and music. Go to SeatGeek.com slash BS to learn how to buy and sell on SeatGeek, as long as you don't plan on buying tickets for Chief Pats on Saturday if you're a Chiefs fan. Don't do that. Don't go to SeatGeek if you're going to do that. And don't forget to download the free SeatGeek app, enter promo code BS, and SeatGeek will send you $20 once you've made your first purchase. Today's episode is also brought to you by Stamps.com. Forget the post office, just stay home. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Sign up for Stamps.com right now. Use the promo code BS. You get a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. You can mail your packages without relying on anybody else. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. And type in BS, that's stamps.com. Enter BS.
1: Yeah. Clear enough for you.
0: <laughs> well, when I think 90s West Coast rap, I think a one man. Malcolm Gladwell. How are you? I'm very well. Um I'll plug you. New Yorker, longtime New Yorker writer. Not writing as much lately.
2: That's not true. That's not true.
0: Five pieces in the last five months? That's Although a lot. I've written zero. I've written zero pieces in the last months. <laughs> I was going
2: to say, months. you're one to talk. <laughs> uh, author
0: of multiple books, including the latest one, David and Goliath. Probably secretly working on another book right now that I, Lord knows what it's about. You always keep this thing secret. Um, we have a lot to talk about. We do. Uh, we do. I want to talk about first this, uh, this L.A. football because it brings so many things to the table for you and me from a topic standpoint. I don't even know where to begin. It's like an all you can eat buffet. Uh, were you following this story? Were you surprised that, uh, that Kroenke was able to get the hell out of St. Louis and get to LA and all these billionaires involved. It just seems like the, a, a tsunami of things that you're interested in. It, would you it think? was
2: a, it was a billionaire mashup. There were so many billionaires in the game that my head was swimming. Yeah. The, okay, let me just start with this about Kroenke. Uh, I want to say a few words of condolence to St. Louis. Me too. So here's what he does in St. Louis. Let's not let this fact be forgotten. A bunch of years ago, he gets them to build uh, whatever it is, the Edmund Jones... Edward Bowl.
0: Jones Dome.
2: Edward Jones Dome. For which he... Uh, Edward Kroenke, comma, a man worth $6 billion, comma, for which he pays a grand total of zero, right? Yeah taxpayers of st louis build that thing he has now left st louis and they're still paying for it
0: yeah they owe 100 million dollars
2: so it's like what i read that and i was like it seems to me you have a choice if you're an owner you can pay for the for the stadium yourself at which point you're free to leave whenever you want right you should be able to go where it's your business you're you have a right to move a business wherever you want but if you're going to take public money to build the The infrastructure for your business, you can't just waltz out the door first chance you get, leaving them holding the bag. I mean, that's crazy.
0: Well, it was a bad omen. And I forget how many, many, it might have been two and a half years ago. He bought all this land in the old Hollywood Park that was right next to where they were building the Forum, which is excellent, which is they revamped the Forum. It's a state-of-the-art concert place, basically. And I think it opened like a year and a half ago. But he bought all this land for yeah. no reason at all. Other than the reason was that he wanted to put a football stadium there. And everybody's like, oh, Stan Kroenke, mate. Well, gee, that's interesting. He bought all the Singlewood land. It's like, hmm. And I remember tweeting about it at the time. You know, my little spidey senses went off. I think a lot of people said, like, yeah. this is a move you make when you're planning on moving your football team to a new place. So there's a whole bunch of variables going on here. One of which is... I think we all realize how stupid it is to build a football stadium and how little benefit it has for the public unless you're getting a whole community around it and you're getting all these businesses. And I think a very small scale version of of how this worked was when they redid LA Live, which is where the Staples Center is, where the Lakers and Clippers and the Kings and concerts, all this stuff. So that place used to be in the middle of nowhere. I had Clipper tickets in 2004, I think I got them is in the middle of nowhere. Downtown was like a wasteland. It was like where Michael Mann filmed food, movies every eight years. And when they, were, they, they had this plan, it was like, yeah, we're going to have a hotel and we're going to have restaurants. It was like, oh, yeah, good luck. And now you go down there and it's, it's kind of reinvigorated that downtown. So I'm not saying this can't work. When it doesn't work is when they do it in a place like where San Francisco built their football stadium. Right? Which is in Santa Clara, which is in the middle of nowhere. And they got rid of all these kids' soccer fields and just put it in this place that is impossible to get to and is going to be the biggest Super Bowl cluster F that we've ever had from a traffic standpoint. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Inglewood, which is, you know, off the 405, it's near LAX. It's got the forum already. It's got a place where people, it it has potential to be like a Brooklyn type scenario for LA where people might actually move there and buy houses and hope the houses go up, things like that. It makes sense to me. So
2: So there's a lot. Does it make sense when there is a larger logic behind? Because you're spending a billion plus. What's the total price tag for Cronkie's idea? Well,
0: well, so probably five. I, I heard 500 million for relocation. Yeah, um, they're claiming the the stadium's going to build, going to cost one point eight billion. I think I, I've heard it's going to cost like two and a half billion. Yeah, and also he bought all the land. But here's the thing, he's paying for all of it. Mm-hmm. It's not costing the public anything. So part of me is thinking, like, you know, this is America. Can you really blame this guy? He's moving cities. He has this incredible business opportunity where he can own the premier football stadium in LA for the cost of 3 billion dollars in the second biggest TV market we have that's going to be a home for all these super bowls and all these different things and probably it's going to be the focal point of the 2024 olympics if we get it in LA and all the concerts that could be there can you blame him for doing this
2: no you you can't but it goes back last time we had a we we did this we we did your podcast we talked about the the remember the uh, don't be an asshole rule. Yeah, there's a clear don't be an asshole uh, rule here, which is I totally agree with everything You said I'm delighted Kronky's paying for this out of his own pocket, but the league should follow the don't be an asshole rule and go to St. Louis and pay off the, the outstanding 100 million dollars on the the Jones Dome. Yeah, they, that seems fair. That they're already because the league does gives you as a matter of Policy gives anyone moving stadiums $200 million in uh, financing, right? Yeah. That's like, in this case, I just, just take half of that and give it to the city of St. Louis. The city of St. Louis, it's not like it's rolling in cash, right? The struggling city, like many cities around this country, just, just make them whole, right? Why, I don't understand why it's so hard for the single wealthiest uh, professional sport in the world to act like a decent human being when it comes to dealing with struggling communities.
0: Well, and then the other interesting thing about well, there's a million interesting things, but St. Louis, it's a it's it's a place the Cardinals are the team in St. Louis, right? Yeah. And the Blues, I would say are were dead even with the Rams depending on who was doing better, but really the Cardinals were the team. Like if if the Cardinals left St. Louis, You're losing 81 home games. You're losing decades and decades and decades of history and one of the best baseball teams. And like that is one of the most traumatizing. That would have been one of the most traumatizing events in sports, recent sports history if they left. The Rams, it's like, you know, the the L.A. Rams moved to St. Louis because Georgia Frontier, her husband died. And by the way, she'd be a great documentary. I, I so really always thought was, Georgia Frontier would be a really good sports. She side. was,
2: a, yeah, she was
0: a piece of work and very attractive once upon a time. But <laughs> so she moves St. Louis. She sells thirty percent of the team to Kroenke. They get the they get the Rams. The Warner era is really fun, and now the last ten twelve years they've just been terrible. They're only playing in St. Louis eight times a year, plus two exhibition games that nobody goes to, plus the playoffs, which they haven't been in eleven years. So it's eight times a year. Now I've lived in LA since two thousand two. November. I've been to th- maybe four Pats home games in the last 13 years. I love the Pats more than ever. I'm not yeah. sure it matters where your favorite football team plays. Do you think it even matters anymore?
2: Well, it matters. I think that the question of of it, of, of how much it matters is a function of the size of your city. Yes. The smaller your city is, the more it matters. Um, th- my one reservation about this this idea of relocating all these teams to LA is that how much does LA really care about getting one more on top of a million other things that LA has going for it? Whereas if you're St. Louis or you're Green Bay or you're you're a city like that, having a a, a sports franchise, a professional sports franchise, matters a whole matters a whole lot, right? I mean, it's like that's what you. It's, just, it's the same. Um, it's. I had some. I was talking to someone the other day about Winnipeg, in Canada, and about how when a band. When a relatively big-deal music band comes and plays Winnipeg, it makes a huge difference. It's like a cultural happening. Yeah. Why? Because it's a small city in the middle of nowhere, and there's a limited number of people who come from, from the outside uh, to visit. In Toronto, that same band, or New York City, that same band playing, no one cares. So I, I wonder whether there's a kind of... We shouldn't have... I, I'm, I'm continuing on my sympathy for St. Louis here... The Rams were always going to mean more to St. Louis than they're going to mean to LA. There's just no question about that. True,
0: but it's at the same time, like when the Browns left Cleveland, when you talk about the generations of history they had there, it was.
2: No, you're you're right. There are other teams. The The cards would be, that would be an unspeakable event if that happened.
0: Yeah, I think they were like a level two or level three for what the team meant to the community. Like I, I, I think some, put it this way, even though I feel terrible for St. Louis, they'll be fine. You know, like I think if the Vikings left Minnesota or if green Bay, if they left Wisconsin or if Buffalo left Buffalo, that would be a, you, now you're talking about a totally different level of, of teams having their identity wrapped up. And this is why I was so interesting with Sacramento when Sacramento was, was nearly moving to Seattle the Kings move out of Sacramento, basically, then they're no different than Fresno or five other cities in California at that point. It's like what happened when the Whalers left Hartford, the Whalers left Hartford, the Whalers were the one thing that Hartford had that made them kind of stand out in the Connecticut area. It's like, well, we have one of the four sports teams. We're a real city. Yeah. Then they leave and it's like, well, Hartford, New Haven, Bridgeport, whatever. You're, you're just kind of in the mix. So from that standpoint, St. Louis is fine. But you but how these... did
2: Hartford can, we, can I just pause and say? Yeah. How did they get a? Did they get a franchise in the first? Oh, because they were part of the WHA. Oh, that's right. They got they got in on because Hartford. I'm sorry, like the idea that Hartford would have a professional sports franchise is kind of hilarious.
0: But now, if you flip it around, you you think they should have kept the Whalers in Hartford. They could have been like ESPN's official team. ESPN yeah. could have. They basically could have played in the ESPN Dome. These people could have bought a 50% stake and kept hockey and turned them into their official team. But you brought up about uh, L.A. Trust me, nobody cares. I think there's there's a certain generation of Rams fans here that are maybe 35 and older, people that when, like the Ferragamo team, Eric Dickerson, so that was the 80s. You had to be at least 10 during that stage. So anybody like maybe over 35 to 60 might have cared. Um, but nobody under thirty five cares, and I, and what's going to be interesting is, you see, my theory is, just the way football is now, and you can see it in the whole Seat era. Notice how I Seat Geek are presenting sponsor, but the secondary <laughs> ticket market era, you go, to the, you see these football games now, and there's twenty five thousand fans from the other team at these games, and my theory on LA is.
2: It's that's go- what's going to
0: happen. It's going to be the all-time go-see-your-team-when-they're-in-town because L.A. is the all-time transplant city. When the Patriots play here, there's going to be 60,000 Patriot fans at an L.A. game. Same yeah. thing for Chicago. Same thing for Minnesota and Green Bay and whoever. And it's going to be this traveling uh, – I, I think it's going to be one of the most bizarre recurring things that we have in any sport where it's just like basically this facility – for transplants to see their team when they come to town once every couple of years,
2: like hockey, like hockey in the south. Oh yeah, same thing. Same thing happens.
0: Well, you see it. You see it with. Uh, I mean, that's what Clipper games were like before Chris Paul and Blake. Like he, there was this like two year stretch before the Clippers kind of became a contender, where it was just, you know, if Miami came to town in 2011, it was all of a sudden there was 30 percent Miami fans there, and you see it when Golden State comes. And
2: do, do don't you worry though? My concern long-term, the way that sports, professional sports, build a dedicated, loyal fan bases is by making that kind of strong local connection. You're a Celts fan because your dad took you to Celts games right. for years and years and years and years and years. It was the team in your hometown, and you could afford tickets, you Didn't went to cheaper. a lot of games, yeah. and that forged an emotional connection that stays with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. These kinds of moves are, are getting away from that, and they're turning they're, – they're forsaking the building of those kinds of long-term emotional bonds for, economic, for immediate economic returns. Now, maybe that's fine, but I worry – I think I've always thought that people's allegiances to sports are more fickle than uh, we realize. And if you don't do the hard work of building those kinds of everyday emotional ties with a fan base – one or two generations out, you're in trouble.
0: Well, I thought about that when I moved to LA because if I had moved to LA 15 years earlier, I don't, I definitely wouldn't have stayed because I wouldn't have been able to see my teams, you know. And I think the one thing that's really changed is the accessibility that you have to your teams, whether you go to the games or not, you know. Like when, yeah. when I was in like 2000, the year 2000. If you had said, "What's the one thing?" If you had the money or the access or the connections, what's the one thing you would want in life? I would have said Red Sox tickets. I would have said great Red Sox tickets on the third base side, about 10 rows up to the right of the third base back. That would have been my, my number one pick in a fantasy draft. I'm just like I'm going to go to 81 Red Sox games. And now you think 2015, 2016, it's just so different. You know, it's sometimes it's just more fun to stay home. I wouldn't want to go to eighty-one baseball games. I'd want to go to yeah. like fifteen.
2: <laughs> you had so much time to kill in that period of your life. Oh well, yeah, that's were, the other thing. I had a shitload of time. Yeah, <laughs> you have. If you want to go to eighty-one baseball games, basically you're 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 saying to the world, I have no social life, and I have and no. I have no professional life. <laughs> it would have
0: been fantastic. It's Fen- <laughs> Fenway, like, what's better? But it, This was 2000. Like, there were, I had less choices. I would have gone to maybe 60. So I would have maybe gone to 60 yeah. to 81. But it would have been awesome. But, like, it, you know, I would go to, I would try to go to 20 to 25 Celtic games a year. St- stealing my dad's tickets, things like that. I just wonder if, uh, you know, like, look at the poor people in St. Louis, right? They're still going to watch every Rams game. It's just a question of not going to the games, but it's like, you know, if, if you've talked to anybody who has football season tickets, what's really changed is it's less fun to go to the games because they've cut down on the uh, tailgate before and after almost every team has done this where you're only allowed to be in the parking lot for like three hours before the game, before it used to be like this 18 hour event, you, you know, my yeah. buddy J Bug at the Pats games, they would be there by like seven 30 in the morning. Oh, wow. You know, and they'd be grilling by eight thirty and they'd be there for five hours and they go to the game, they come out and they'd be there for another couple hours, they drive home at like nine o'clock, and now it's like you gotta show up at I think ten o'clock. You gotta be out of there by within like an hour and a half, two hours after the game. And it's just I don't think it's as fun, is my point. Yeah. So, um wait, about the LA thing. The billionaires involved, right? So explain this to me. Bob Iger yeah, Disney chairman gets dragged into this whole thing, or drags himself into it once, and yeah. backs this Carson bid. That you wouldn't know this, but Carson, you know, it's it's a half hour outside L.A. It's where the soccer is. It's a place that if they had put a football stadium, I don't think it would have blown up a, a new community that out of nowhere. I, yeah, I you, think,
2: didn't, you didn't think that that plan was as logical as Englewood.
0: Didn't think it was nearly as logical. Made way less sense to me. He gets involved in this bid, the Chargers and Raiders, Carson. And, uh, you know, when he got involved, it was like, oh, because I always thought Inglewood was a done deal. This is happening, the whole thing. Then Yager's involved. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, I knew from personal experience that he wanted to get involved in an L.A. football team. That was one of the reasons I had so many problems that he has pinned the last year. Yeah. Um, then he doesn't, not only does he not get it, it's a 32 vote for Inglewood. And Iger's on the outside looking in. I have. Why was he in this? Just from from your opinion, looking from afar, why would somebody who who has made so many good decisions over the years,
2: yeah, and has well, so I, much
0: money and power, why would he back the wrong people?
2: There are several things that that confuse me. One is from his perspective. <clears throat> if you're the chairman and CEO of a company that is a broadcaster of NFL games, yeah. How do you turn around and then personally get involved in an NFL bid, in an ownership bid? It's a great point. <clears throat> um, I don't really, I didn't, I didn't, no, maybe there's nothing wrong with that. And there, probably, there, clearly there was very little wrong with it, otherwise he wouldn't be able to do it. But it just struck me as weird. I didn't know what happens when your professional responsibility as a broadcaster um, starts to conflict with your I mean, maybe he was his his notion was he would be gone from espn by the time anything that move actually happened i don't know but that was sort of weird well it, I, also, it uh,
0: would only be weird if you were covering that team or that, that if you're covering that league objectively and then um, somebody that worked for the network was criticizing the commissioner and then uh, <laughs> found out he wasn't at the company anymore on twitter but go
2: ahead this is the, that's your grassy knoll moment in this discussion. Uh,
0: it's a fact, it's what happened.
2: <laughs> no, but my other my other thing is the other thing is what you just said is totally interesting. It wasn't that this was some kind of close call. It's a, it was a slam dunk for Kroenke over the Carson bid, right. right? And that's like the thing about uh, sports at this level. When you get thirty two billionaires in a room, it's all personal. They're not. They're not running spreadsheets and deciding that, or, or talking to urban planners and saying the Englewood bid has the chance to revitalize the community, that's not what's going through their heads. Right. What's going through their heads is, I know that guy, I like him, he backed me the last time we had a dispute about X, Y, and Z, and I don't like this other guy, right? You know that they were going to screw the Raiders if they could.
0: Of course, that was the part them. that was crazy to me. They, they, Al Davis yeah. sued them for years and years. You have these old arrogant billionaires who are like, "Oh, I can stick it to the Davis family. I'm doing that."
2: Yeah, no, 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 no. So that was that was sort of a, but yeah, I didn't either. I did he mis did he misread it? I don't know. It's like a it's a it's a tough one. I I I thought that any bid that involved him would get a lot more support than uh, he ended up getting. It was like. Whoa, it's like a runaway for a
0: Cranky. Can I throw a conspiracy theory at you? This is a hundred percent conspiracy theory.
2: Yeah.
0: Let's say there's a world in which once Cranky buys that land, they all know they're putting the football stadium there. But they have to go through the charade of pretending uh, for the next two plus years. Yeah. That it's not it's going to actually be a fair process and St. Louis has a chance and there's multiple places, all this stuff. They go through the charade. They convince Iger to come in. Either he knows that it's going to Inglewood and he's basically being used to throw people off the scent or they genuinely convince him Carson has a chance because they want to throw Iger off the scent. It's one or the other. Um, but Why the whole, do they
2: need to do this?
0: Well, all right. Just, let's, just
2: preserve the notion of due process that we don't have. It's not like we have a fix in for yes, that, our friendly billionaires.
0: Well, here here's what will be interesting. The Chargers are going to end up in L.A. That's happening. Um, when the Chargers end up in L.A., is Bob Iger going to be a minority owner of the Chargers? Oh, you think
2: his interest gets repurposed? Yes, And he becomes the, uh, that's the,
0: I I don't think he's going to come out of this with nothing. Just looking like, like, uh, a butthead who backed the wrong horse. He's Bob Iger. That's not happening. I think he's going to end up with that chargers bid is how that plays out. You like that theory?
2: Well, you know, given that this is the most completely untransparent league, and and nothing they do. We don't know what goes on behind those doors. Right? It's like 31 old white guys basically divvying up the world. And no matter how, the great thing about the NFL is, and about professional sports in general, but particularly the NFL, is you don't have to be smart or good to succeed. Right? Whenever you have a situation where you can be a jerk, stupid, and a complete asshole to the world and still make a lot of money, then anything's possible the nature of the of the broadcasting rights right now is that simply by virtue of being lucky enough to own an NFL franchise you get more and more money every year right it doesn't matter you do. what you did did not matter what you do i mean some of these people they they could be brain dead and the the checks still keep coming so under that kind of circumstance do you dream up these elaborate conspiratorial scenarios whereby you convince the public you're doing X when you're actually doing Y? Sure you do. I mean, what else do you have to do? Well, here's the
0: other smoking gun of this whole thing, and this is when I knew Inglewood Inglewood was going to get it, and I started tweeting about it, I'm going to say two weeks ago. Once Cranky started throwing in, Cranky, once he started throwing in all these bells and whistles, well, once he started throwing in the bells and whistles for the owners with this LA project, you knew it was done. Right? He's like, hey, we'll put the NFL network there. I'll give yeah. you all the office space and the sets and all that stuff. The NFL, the new home of the NFL Network, guys, right there. Hey, scouting combine, we'll have it in LA. Won't have to pay Indianapolis anymore to do that. Hey, the Pro Bowl, you know that's been a big issue for us. We'll just do it in LA. D- done. You can have it. Oh, Super Bowls, yeah, let's do that too. He he laid out basically. Yeah. When you think about it, the NFL never really had a home. It's just the Super Bowl bounces around. Maybe Miami, New Orleans, and San Diego got a couple more than the other places, but it's bounced around. It doesn't there's no real headquarters. The New York has a headquarters for the NFL, but then LA does too, and NFL networks in LA and it's it the combines in Indianapolis and the Pro Bowls in Hawaii. Now they're gonna have this central location that's gonna be like the NFL and you're gonna have two teams here and all these other things and the Super Bowl every four years. It's just logical. Like how is St. Louis gonna compete with that? It's impossible. Yeah. There's no way.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I I'm gonna read you I, I wanna talk about how dumb it is for anybody to build a football stadium unless somebody's paying for it themselves. These are this is 2015. This was in Billboard. These were the top ten stadiums um that had concerts, like actual shows. Like if Taylor Swift is selling at a football stadium, right? Um, so you think when you build a football stadium, oh, it'll be great. We'll have like San Diego. They're talking about, oh, we'll build this football stadium in San Diego. Well, why would you do that if you're San Diego? You're going to get eight regular season Chargers games, two preseason games, and maybe a playoff game if you're lucky, right? Yeah. All right. Well, here here are the, here's how many concerts played in stadiums, right? Can you guess who the number one stadium was for concerts in uh, in America last year?
2: Meadowland?
0: Yeah, MetLife. 35 shows. That's it? That's it. Guess what? Number two, we had a tie between Soldier Field and Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara. Guess how many shows each those two places had?
2: I'm going to guess around 20.
0: Seven. Seven
2: each.
0: (laughs) Your number four,
2: Uh Gillette
0: Stadium, with a whopping five five concerts for Gillette Stadium, Heinz Field and Lincoln in in Philly, they had four each. AT&T Dallas. Oh, Dallas must have a ton of stuff. Not 3. They had three concerts. Kansas City had three, Minneapolis had three, and San Diego Petco Park had two. So if you so if I'm building a football stadium and I'm allegedly going to revitalize whatever and this is great for the city and you guys should do this and hey taxpayers throwing in your 400 million, what am I getting? I'm getting maybe a convention center. I'm getting maybe a winter classic on January 1st. What am I actually getting?
2: 14 days a year. That's what you're getting.
0: Yeah. How am I revitalizing anything? Yeah. And then on top of it, like I don't know if you've ever been to Dallas Stadium, but it's in the middle of nowhere. It's not in Dallas. It's not downtown. It's like a half hour out of there. Like I remember when Cousin Sal and I went there to a game. You couldn't really go to where the, where it was because you can't park. You can't really hang out. So we went to get barbecued ten minutes away and kind of killed time till we could drive to the stadium. I don't know what communities were revitalizing. Is my point? Yeah. Um, and so San Diego, it's like, oh, you lost the Chargers. Well, you know what you gained is like four hundred million dollars you can spend on other stuff.
2: <laughs> could, yeah. Well, <laughs> spend I never it on schools. I never said why. Is there there was an idea in New York when they when New York was was uh, toying with the idea of building. Um, the new Giants-Jets stadium on the west side of Manhattan. Yeah. By the way, if you want to talk about a traffic tsunami, oh my God. That, would have been the, that would have been the worst traffic. That would have been like epic level kind of Mexico City at rush hour traffic. Right. But th- when they had that idea, there was some notion of combining the convention center and the football stadium. And that's the only really part of it I liked. Yeah. But that made sense to me. Like, why can't you... Isn't there some clever way to repurpose, maybe roll away the some parts of the seats? I don't know how they were planning on doing it, but their notion was they were integrating the convention center with the stadium. And there, that was the first time I thought, now someone's thinking, these are two, four, two kinds of white elephants that we can combine and make a slightly smaller white elephant.
0: Right. So Bob Kraft, when he ended up building Gillette Stadium, then he bought the soccer team and built Patriot place around it, which is a place you can even go to on off days, put like the practice complex there, did all these things. It, when you add everything up, probably made sense, probably a good deal for him. He could probably sell it, whatever. It didn't revitalize the community of Foxborough though. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Foxborough is the same. It always was. Yeah. So, um, but even that like made a little more sense cause he had an MLS team and things like that. Uh, in San Diego, I, I I can't even imagine what they would do with the stadium. Oakland's interesting because my prediction with Oakland is I think they stay, and I think they build a stadium. I think they get some extra money because they got shut out of the LA thing. And when you think about it, Oakland, Oakland's basically the Brooklyn of California. Like it's it's the fastest growing city because San Francisco got so huge. They just have nowhere to put anyone. Everyone's drifting to Oakland. Joel Anderson at BuzzFeed wrote a great piece about how it's changing Oakland and how they're actually pushing the people that lived in Oakland for years and years. Those people are just getting shoved out because the rents are going up. And you can make a case like, yeah, the Bay Area might actually be able to handle two stadiums, but
2: they still have, they're still paying off the renovations from the go-round. well out. that's the thing
0: it's like and, it, and if you live in Oakland would you is that a way you'd want to spend money so you can keep the Raiders for eight games a year that's a good use of 300 to 400 million bucks yeah that yeah. seems crazy to me yeah, yeah anything anything else we got to hit on this
2: <clears throat> no I think well uh, just one last uh, uh you know we should just a little shout out to st. Louis my heart is with you uh, but uh, you'll survive.
0: Do you, do you feel like it's a tiny bit okay if the team that got stolen away got stolen away by the person who had it or the city that had it before? It's almost like when... uh
2: Yeah, there's a little bit of karmic. It's a little bit of... You're right. This is a special case. This It's is, a little bit this, special. If this was the Vikes or the Packers or the Bills, it'd be a whole different conversation. But so this is... We, m- our the our 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 uh, our our feelings towards St. Louis are modified a little bit by the fact that um they'd only had the team for this is not their historical franchise.
0: It's like when Richard Burton and Liz Taylor remarried. Shout out to everyone over forty who got that joke. Um now and the other thing you get you don't get is if you if your team wins the title, then the parade's in this new city and that, that's when it hurts, I think. I think that's when or if there's like an NFC title game and it's the L.A. Rams and not the St. Louis Rams, but you know that team just was terrible for twelve straight years. And yeah, I don't know. I feel bad, but I, I do feel like they're just going to throw themselves in the Cardinal season. And uh, hold on, we got to we got to say hi to a sponsor. Wanted to give a shout out to our friends at Squarespace.com. Our buddies who build gorgeous websites for normal people who do not know how to use websites. What a valuable tool this is. My friend Louis K. just launched his own PR branding business called Covert Creative. Covert with a K. And and yeah, I'm one of his clients. But get this. He used Squarespace. Check out the website at covertcreative.com. Louis is a bigger technology dummy than I am. Shout out to Lewis's new business. Anyway, Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites regardless of skill level, no coding needed, easy-to-use tools, state-of-the-art technology. They make it easy with 24-7 online support. They make it easy with a beautiful website for only $8 a month. They make it easy just to get a free domain. If you buy Squarespace for the year, you get a free domain. So why wait? Start your trial. No credit card required. Go to Squarespace.com. Use the offer code BS for 10% off your first purchase. All right, you want to talk about uh, broadcast rights and the fact yeah. that live sports is actually gaining steam Yeah. in the second screen era. Yeah. The football ratings, football, even though... People seem to be more horrified and confused by football than ever before. It has not hurt the ratings.
2: There's no, been and, no attrition at all. The issue is not the issue with professional sports. Remember, is not just ratings; it's uh, advertising rates. So, if you have a situation where no one is watching any kind of broadcast TV anymore, it means advertisers don't know where to go. So, there's a this huge pool of advertising money that's that wants to. Go somewhere to pay for something. And if no one's watching you know the, the network offering at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night, what are you going to do? Well, all you're left with, the only thing that you can command uh, that makes sense to reach a broad section of the American public in a reliable way is live sports, right? That if we're not all watching Seinfeld at 10 o'clock every night on Tuesdays, What's left? What's left is NFL football and NBA and baseball. You left, that,
0: you left out one thing, award, award shows.
2: And award shows, yeah. So any kind of must-watch live event where no one's going to tape it and watch it later can now command a premium from advertisers they couldn't command before. So that's what I, what I said before about how if you're an NFL owner now, you don't have to do anything. You just have to sit there. And you'll get a bigger and bigger check every year from these rising advertising rates. And the, the more broadcast television disintegrates, as and that seems to be happening faster and faster, the more the people who own those rare pieces of live must-watch programming are going to make. So it's this win, 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 win. It's like all the smart – it's why like all these smart billionaires started snapping up sports franchises in the last – 10 years because they could see which way the winds were blowing in terms of advertising dollars.
0: Well, it's also why there are no teams available right now. The only times team yeah. come, teams come available anymore, especially in football is when the owner is like 98 years old. Yeah. It's like, Hey, Please. this guy's about to die. We need to sell the team. That That's the scenario now to get an NFL team because anyone else would be insane. And if you think about it, just look at what the NFL just did, right? The easiest solution here, the solution that would have not screwed over St. Louis, is to add a 33rd team. Just say, you know what? We don't want to do this to St. Louis. Not cool. We don't want to do this to those great fans there. We're going to add a team. And guess what? All of those owners are like, we're not adding a team.
2: Yeah. Why would we dilute our stake?
0: Yeah. We have a it 130, 132nd, is- second, 132nd? Second? Yeah. Stake. In all of our media rights for forever, why am I going to change that to a one thirty third? Because yeah. you're going to give me thirty million. I'd rather have the the stake I have now. No thanks. And instead, they're getting two, a relocation fee that they're going to split for like $15-16 million anyway.
2: Six wasn't the relocation fee like half a billion dollars?
0: Yeah, it's at least five hundred. I heard yeah. five hundred. Some people are reporting six hundred, but that's
2: six hundred. Yeah, five
0: hundred divided by thirty two is just hey, here's your free seventeen million.
2: There was a time 25, 30 years ago where the expectation was if you bought a professional sports franchise, it might not end up costing you money. But it was it was something, it was like buying a fancy car. It was like a, a little toy that you had that was a sideline and you had to make your money elsewhere. Right. And that is like so changed. It's well, really interesting.
0: We've, we've discussed this a little bit in the past, but it really is one of the greatest investments you could ever make. You can write off a ton of it. You have all the antitrust laws, all that stuff is, is in your favor. It's never going to go down and it's a total ego purchase. You know, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know. The best way to describe it is when you buy a brand new car, the price is what it is, right? So let's say you bought some hundred thousand dollar car. It's a hundred thousand dollars. If you drive it for four months, it's now worth like $75,000. Um, that hundred thousand dollar car mentality, um, when, when you actually have there's not a lot of cars available now it's like now ego's involved in all this stuff and these guys just don't care they just want the teams they want the ego they want they're to say fun. they're the guy they Wait. want to puff their chest out
2: which is the most fun sport to be an owner in? basketball you think basketball is, it'd be more fun to you be did, a owner. because you're than courtside
0: yeah you're like the man like look at the other thing and we've talked about this before but like who the, did anyone know who Joe Lakeup was five years ago? Do you know who he was?
1: Yeah.
0: People knew that Steve Ballmer was the Microsoft guy, but did did they know what he looked like? Yeah. Now he's underneath
2: the basket. Cuban is the great example of someone who... (coughs) Totally. Yeah, who is living the dream.
0: Cuban would have been the guy who just sold broadcast.com for a ton of money and, and, and sold it at the perfect time right before the bubble burst. And now he's a completely different entity, you know, and it's because he bought that team. And uh,
2: you have more chances to meddle in basketball, too. I mean, I always this is why whenever people attack owners for meddling, I always think, yeah, but if I was an owner, I would totally meddle. I I wouldn't be. Why would I be the hands-off owner? What's the point of being a hands-off owner? I would be the one who would want to make, I want to, like, you know, interfere and make all kinds of personnel decisions. Why? Because I own the team.
0: Well, we why had an interesting test case for that. Somebody that you knew really well that you wrote a chapter in one of your books about.
2: Oh, Fantastic. here we go. Here we go. Oh, here we boy. go. Your favorite topic.
0: Now, I don't know if we've talked about this on a <laughs> right. podcast, though. Have we talked about this on a podcast? I,
2: I, I, th- I think we mentioned it last time. You, I don't think we've had a conversation over the last five years where you haven't Well, but when, up- he got the,
0: when, when he got the Kings, though, you were excited. You thought he was going to be re- way out of the box and awesome and innovative. And basically what we just talked about, which is like, yeah, why wouldn't he medal? I own the team. I'm in I a middle. This is my business.
2: I still think I still think he's going to end up being a great owner. Okay. I believe that. Because he's not here's the thing. You look at the group of owners, you can divide them down the middle. There's the group who made their own money and there's the group who inherited their money. And the ones who made their own money are the interesting ones. Yeah. They tend to be a lot smarter, they're a, ton, a lot more with it, a lot more open to new ideas, and they're the ones who like like Peter Goober and the Warriors. Right. Goober, I feel like there's a guy who is super, super smart, uh, completely in touch with modern culture. It's not a coincidence that he buys, He buys. he's part of an ownership group that buys the Warriors, and then the Warriors sort of enter this kind of golden age. That's a whole different kind of – there's all kinds of, I'm guessing, really, really smart decisions that were made behind the scenes that have made the Warriors who the Warriors are because they got a genuinely – Intelligent guys, an owner, and I, you know, I, I, think the same thing. I think the same thing is going to happen with the Kings. It might take a little longer, but that was also a much more troubled franchise.
0: This is the this is the best news Sacramento fans have had in some time. That you still have confidence in Vucic.
2: I'm still
1: they're I'm
0: grasping still, for straws. So this is
1: great. I'm still, yeah,
0: no. You know what's great? here's how smart Peter Gruber is. I think he put up like 25 million
1: with no, the Warriors.
0: I think Laker put up like 200 250 million. Laker put yeah. up. My point is, Laker put like ten times as much money, or eight times, or whatever it was, way more money than Goober did. But yet, when they were getting, when they were accepting the trophy, it was the two of them together. And I was thinking, like, man, it's got to kill Laker. He put up so much more money than, <laughs> than Goober did. It's got. He just must want to hit him over the head with the trophy. But that's Goober being smart. Uh, but we But when you talk about broadcast rights and all that stuff, yeah. And especially the NBA, because I think the NBA is the best purchase of all these leagues. Because right now, the NFL, you know, who knows? We, as we've discussed many times, youth football, parents yeah. not letting their kids play football anymore. We don't know what football is going to like 20 years. It might look, might look exactly the same, but we, Here, we're not positive.
2: Here's my thing about football. That this season was the first season where I felt like the narrative about football was almost entirely about injuries. It was about there was not a single game where at some point or some more than one point where there was there wasn't a kind of discussion about the outcome of the game. That was entirely about how the game would have been would have uh, would have gone differently if uh, injuries hadn't happened. If, yeah. you know, think about it. If there were no injuries in the NFL this season, what uh, would we have? the uh, How many of the eight teams or eight teams we have left would still be there? I mean, Or how that ought to be different.
0: So, and also, they're diagnosing the injury is much better now, which is another factor. Like before, it's like if you got your bell rung, you went back out. Yeah. I think the tipping point for this was the Chiefs-Colts game in the playoffs, I'm going to say three years ago, maybe two years ago. Uh, Jamal Charles, in the first quarter of that game, got his bell rung. Yeah. Came out. It was the first time I remember watching a football game when they showed him in the sidelines going, oh, he's gone. He's out. And if you're a Chiefs fan, you're thinking, like, get back in there, Jamal. Oh, no, I can't think that way anymore because he's a human being and he might have long-term damage. Maybe you should stay out. This is terrible. We're going to lose. And you're just tormented with all these things. I never remembered thinking about those things before that football
1: game.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, this, I thought of this, and I was surprised it didn't come up more, watching the Texans and the Chiefs. Yeah. Brian Hoyer has had two concussions this year. Oh, I know. He played the he played a game that bore no resemblance to his abilities as a quarterback. Yeah, that was the game of someone who, who, who is not all there. Right. He shouldn't have been. You can't have two. I don't think anyone who has two concussions in a single season should be allowed to play for the balance of the season. I thought it was. Uh, and there was a case where that's the only explanation I can come up with for how why he played that way. And there's I got, another,
1: I got knocked point.
0: out. Oh, um, I, I was just gonna say I got knocked out when I was 16 I didn't feel right for like three and a half months yeah like light was bothering me all that stuff I can't imagine getting two concussions in the in same a, season and then playing quarterback again that's crazy yeah anyway and he
2: and there's a case where so the I, you can't talk about that game without talking about uh, the injuries that affected the players on the field Hoyer and J.J. Watt right yeah and You know, the what ifs about what if Jamal Charles had still been, I mean, this is a, isn't it weird that you have a sport where the first thing you talk about when you talk about games is the injuries to the players? Has this ever happened that a sport has been so completely dominated by talk about uh, the impairment of the athletes? Because the opposite has happened in basketball. In basketball, injuries were a way bigger deal 20 and 30 years ago.
0: Right. Now that science has gotten better.
2: And it was, and and you were done. Bernard King is never the same, right after his knee injury, and that has a profound effect. For who's he playing for at the time? The Knicks. Well,
0: Durant's a great example of this, right? If in 1981 Durant breaks his foot twice, and he becomes Andrew Tony.
1: Yeah. Maybe he never.
0: Maybe or Bill Walton. Maybe he never comes back. And now it's like you. And I was worried about him coming back. I was very dubious at OKC because I I wanted to see Durant play a couple months in a row. Yeah. rants back like if you watch that guy it's like that guy's a hundred percent and I don't know if that happens 30 years ago you're right about football though it it it's just seems to... like it lingers over everything and we were talking I' watched with a bunch of guys on Saturday uh and one of them was saying how just every play somebody should get injured like you just watch like even a run play and you see guys who are between Two hundred and ninety and four hundred pounds just blocking each other and falling down and falling on each other's legs and it just seems like somebody should always get hurt.
2: Yeah. I can't watch Gronkowski. Uh, on every single time he catches the ball, I assume I someone's gonna take out his knees.
0: This is the this has been it's weird because he's he's one of the five best Patriots of all time. He's the best tight end I've ever seen. And every time they throw the ball to him, I'm terrified. And I've talked about this before, but you know, nobody knows how to tackle him, so they just go right at his knees. And there are these plays when they throw over the middle to him where he catches the ball facing the quarterback and then turns around and there's about a second there as he's turning around, if the timing gets screwed up where the safety's just at his knees before he sees it.
2: Yeah.
1: And And it's it's just not it's it's not a mistake
2: it's not a mistake to say that the 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 Patriots would rather have lost the last two games of the season than done anything to jeopardize his health because they basically stopped using him the last two games.
0: Oh, yeah. They spread him out as wide receiver. They used him once. There was a fourth and nine play when they thought they had a chance to just steal the uh, the game that went in overtime, the Jets game. But that's, They sent that's, him over the middle once, and he got crushed. And they were like, we're not doing that again. Gronkowski never went over the middle again. But in the playoffs, he's going to go over the middle, and the Chiefs are going to go after him, and they're going to want to put that yeah. fear in him that if you go over the middle, we're going to go at your knees Yeah, and it's legal and the way it goes. But wait, going back to the football ratings, I've noticed that there's so much content now and I'm not just talking about TV. I'm just talking, I'm talking about shows. I'm talking about uh, podcasts, like whatever you want. There, there's just a glut of everything. And it's so hard for something to break through and stand out, which is what was interesting about making a murder on Netflix which I don't know whether it was because when they released it or it was something about the holidays or whatever, but it seemed like a disproportionate amount of people watched it compared Mm -hmm. to what else, everything else that's just on television. It's harder and harder to stand out. And usually when that happens, that's better for the established people. Right? So football is established. That's it's on Monday night. It's on Thursday night. The playoffs are in the first two weekends of January, four times. It's really hard to screw that lead up. If anything, you're going to extend it. That's what made it so funny when the NCAA, they have this college football playoff. Now that's a perfect example of like extending your lead. Mm-hmm. And yet they put it on New Year's Eve, which was yeah. one of the five. I mean, everybody's talked about it. it was one of the five dumbest programming moves of this decade. But yeah. if you just put that on any other night, it becomes the night, you know? And, I don't, I don't, I think it's going to be harder and harder for stuff to get seen and listened to and heard and all this stuff because even yesterday, like the, the Powerball, somebody won the Powerball who lived in Chino and my head immediately raced to, uh, the lead character in the OC who huh? was from Chino and it was a big plot line in, in the OC. Like they didn't respect him cause he was from Chino. He's a kid from the streets of Chino and, uh, leading to the guy on the beach telling him like, welcome to the OC bitch. Uh, but that when that show came out, which was, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, it felt like everybody, there was a cultural, um, connection with it. It just felt like everybody in a certain demo saw it, talked about it, consumed it. And I wonder 10 years later, if it came out, I think it would just get lost in all these other things that are out. Does it make sense? We don't
2: have these, (laughs) the shows you go back 30 years, uh, there were these national conversations around shows. Right. Everyone, when there was when Seinfeld came on at its height, everyone watched Seinfeld. I mean, you just look at the at the ratings back then. The, you know, a, a, a failing show twenty five years ago had ratings that were greater than the biggest hit show today. I mean, it's like it's hard to uh, to wrap our minds around the fact that everyone was tuned into the same thing. I remember, remember when Miami Vice came out. Yeah. I didn't know, or, or 90210, or Mel, even a bad show, a legitimately bad show like Melrose Place. How dare you? I, I, that really I hurt watched,
0: my feelings. I felt like that was a personal attack.
2: I watched, I, watched, I used to do a, back, this is the earliest internet, I used to do an email synopsis of every episode of Melrose Place, oh my God. and I had a list of like a hundred people who I would send it out to after every, I, it was like on, on, on Wednesdays and I would have it up by Thursday mornings. Like that was, and why did I do that? Because I was absolutely sure that everyone I knew, all of us in our twenties or late twenties, early thirties, everyone I knew was watching Melrose Place, right? There is not a single show that I would have the same certainty about today. The only thing that comes close was Serial last year. Basically I had, I had certainty that everyone I knew was watching uh, was listening to serial. I don't think to... get,
0: you don't think like Game of Thrones is there.
2: I don't feel like I think it's as close as it's we're as getting. As close as
0: we're getting, yeah.
2: Even Game of Thrones is watched by a fraction of the people who watch Melrose Place at its height.
0: Well, you, remember Monday nights was nine oh two and oh followed by Melrose.
2: It was Monday, for a while.
0: Yeah, it was like yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It was it was uh, at least for a couple years. Then they split them up. But
2: um, but it was so. But think about this. That was a night. I had a job, I had a full-time job, yeah. and I was, I was so invested in this, in a kind of ironic way, but still, I, I was so invested in this, it was a bad show, you, you would never watch it today. It was, Again, you're it, hurting
1: me, you're hurting my feelings.
2: I was so invested in it that I would take two hours off on a, the, the morning after that show and write up this thing and laboriously send it out to 100 people. I mean, it was, it's just you'd never do that today you'd, for a for like a network show. I mean, it seems the whole thing is so sort of crazy in retrospect.
0: Well, that and then Thursday night was big too because that that first year of Friends and this was pre-internet, so you're talking ninety four, and it was Friends and Seinfeld were on the same night, and ER first year was on the Clooney sit, the just ER was amazing. ER is the most underrated drama in the last twenty five years. Yeah, But that was all the same night and everyone I knew watched TV that night and if you were out that night you taped it and you watched it later because you didn't want to feel left out. Yeah. And there's there's just not a lot of things like that now. You know what reminded me of that actually? I think Star Wars was like that. You just felt like an idiot. if you, like. I haven't seen Star Wars yet and I feel like an idiot. I feel like every single person I know has seen Star Wars and has an opinion on it and I'm totally left out of all the conversations.
2: My nephew had seen it three times before I basically even considered going yeah, no, no, it was no. It's, the number of those things. That's why it's basically sports, and two or three times a year, there is a non-sports cultural happening. Yeah, that uh, everyone in. If you live in New York City, it's the, it's the musical Hamilton has that same. Right. Basically, everyone is if they haven't seen it, they're like trying to see it. But those I, things are there. Yeah, right. They're increasingly rare. The
0: my uh, my wife and daughter were in New York City last week, and I got them Billy Joel tickets and I got them Hamilton tickets, and they knew nothing about Hamilton, like zero. And I was like, "Don't research it, don't don't nothing, just stay out, just go." And it was like their heads almost exploded. They just didn't. My daughter, I think she set the record for most questions I ever asked during a Broadway musical. Was so, <laughs> just, and they were just so blown away. They thought it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. But I
2: was told not to see it unless I was prepared for the fact that I would. Never want to see a Broadway show again because no Broadway show would ever uh, live up to Hamilton.
0: It does feel like it's one of the great cultural slash creative creations that have happened in a long time.
2: Well, it's the last one I remember that's had that's kind of buzz is Book of Mormon, right?
0: Oh, yeah. And that was, and what, that was six book, years that
2: ago? That was what? Six, five, six years ago? Yeah. That's, yeah, these things come, they come along with that kind of, um, uh, relative in frequency.
0: Hey, speaking of cultural events Game of Thrones is coming We're three months away and miraculously you don't need cable or satellite to watch HBO anymore just download the HBO Now app and start a free one month trial HBO Now basically a library okay. for 90% of the best things HBO is either showing or has ever shown Curb Your Enthusiasm Sopranos Late Shift and The Band Played On it's all in there ton of movies Game of Thrones coming in three months at some point in 2016, you might even be able to watch this podcast on HBO. Now, who knows? Uh, this world might exist. So, do yourself a favor: download the HBO Now app today. Wasn't that a seamless live read? I'm really proud of myself.
2: <laughs> no, I was for a moment. I thought we were. I was, you know, we were just talking. Yeah, we were talking. I was expected to chime in.
0: Um, can we talk David Bowie really quick? Yes. Just an incredible uh, outpouring of pieces and videos uh-huh. and. All this stuff. What was interesting at Grantland, Chuck and uh and Papademus I had this idea called the no-bituary. It mm-hmm. always bothered me that whenever somebody died, that's when the outpouring happened and the person who died never got to see it. And I was like, Can we what if we called it like the obituary? And and you run them early. We just never but we never actually did the idea. And then there was a rumor that Bowie died. that that Bowie died. And Chuck and Alex started this whole email chain. But then it turned out he hadn't died. But then they kept the email chain going, and we made that an obituary. Yeah, and and it was amazing. It was like thirteen thousand words. And well, I, then, hope, you know, the, I hope you read it.
2: The, the New York Times uh, does your obituary if you're famous. They do your obituary while you're still alive, so you can answer questions about yourself. Is that so true? You, yes, totally. They call you up, and they they have a file. Like so, if, you know, if you're if you're Bill Clinton or if you're, I mean, doesn't I mean, you think about the, or anyone, even a, a much lesser kind of person who might be a potential obit, they will call you up and they'll say, they'll check facts and they'll ask you questions and they'll, it's kind of, so you have that, you have a private version of the, right. of the obituary.
0: I remember when I was working at the Herald in the mid nineties and, you know, very primitive computer system and they had all these different little categories and subcategories and I was just so bored, like waiting for high school coaches to call scores in or whatever. And I'm just surfing around all these like secret categories ad. And I found this obituary basically folder. And it was all pre-written. It was all written yeah. obituaries about people who hadn't died yet that it's like, Oh, if Bill Russell dies, we just get this up in 20 minutes. I was so traumatized. I was like, this is terrible. This is such bad karma. Red Arback <laughs> is in here. I, I was almost thought about deleting them. I was so upset. It, was, it just felt like bad juju. I-
2: I'm surprised you didn't change the Bill Russell one to make it more positive.
0: I might have I might have actually gone in there and, and tweaked a couple sentences for a couple of them. Don't tell anyone. But uh, but anyway, with Bowie... Uh, but Bowie.
2: Bowie here's I, what I of, you oh know God. what's amazing to me about Bowie is, I mean, there's so many interesting things, but that generation of uh, British rock and rollers, it's like completely... I mean, what an extraordinary group of people. Yeah. The, the entire history of rock and roll from that era... Is essentially these middle class uh, art school, middle and lower middle class uh, English art school guys in one form or another. I mean, they, and they are the list of them, and they're all brilliant, and they're all from within, well, well some, some are from Liverpool, but if they're in London, they're all like in South London and East London, and they all randomly ran into each other when they were 20 years old in such and such a place. It's just an unbelievable uh, group of talented people coming out in one era,
0: and it struck me because one of the things that came out of the Bowie coverage was this crazy interview he did with Mark Goodman of MTV. When uh, Bowie kind of flipped the tables on him about you know the first year and a half or so on MTV, they they didn't really play any black artists at all, um, and and he kind of went at Mark Goodman with it, and Mark Goodman's answers if they happen now, I don't think he'd ever work again. He He's basically like, we can't play them in middle America. They'll be afraid of those black faces. Like it was insane. Really? It was, like I was alive in 1983. I don't remember things be, being that blatantly racist, but yeah. uh, obviously I was in new England. So maybe I was a little coddled, <laughs> but, uh, but Wesley Morris, uh, my old friend who writes for the New York times now wrote this awesome piece about um, Bowie and how, the different effects he had on black culture and everything, but it got me thinking. Like MTV comes out, really, it's 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 created in eighty one, but eighty two, eighty three is when it took off, and it remind almost reminds me of like a chapter that you never wrote in one of your books, where it's just a perfect storm of all these types of people from all these different generations, either. Somebody whose career hadn't taken off, but MTV was the reason it took off. Or somebody who was famous already, but hadn't really gone to the next level yet. And, and MTV pushed them there, like Van Halen, Michael Jackson, those type of people. Mm-hmm. And then the people who were able to reinvigorate their careers with MTV, like Bowie. yeah, Because yeah. he had the Let's Dance album. And his videos, like, I can't tell you how many times I watched the China Girl video. It was, it was one of my favorite Bowie songs, but... It was such a weird, crazy video and I wasn't, there's all of a sudden he's talking about swastikas and I I wasn't positive what he was trying to say. Like it would really freak me out when I was 14 and he had this second life for me because of his MTV. And my my question is, if MTV comes along like seven years later, Mm -hmm. it's a completely different thing because it wouldn't have caught this weird collection of unforgettable people at these awesome points in their career comes yeah. along in 1989, it misses basically everybody from the 70s. And yeah. then it comes along at this terrible time for music when we were in like this vanilla ice, you know, this terrible stage. So it's just, I, I just think it's amazing that MTV happened right there, right at that specific point and no other point.
2: Well, it gets lucky with, um, there was a great piece by Anthony Lane in The New Yorker about Bowie in which he points out that Bowie is best understood not as a, uh, a rock star, a singer, but as an actor. And that he has the career that an actor had. Only he happened to be, his medium happened to be music, but he behaves like an actor and he took on roles and his appeal and approach was essentially cinematic. It's really kind of a brilliant ex, sort of explanation of what Bowie was and, and why he worked the way he worked. And do that, you think, <clears throat> do that, you think that,
0: he invented reinvention for, for no. major celebrities? Or who like who did that? He, like, he was always something different.
2: Who yes, did that playing, before him? No one did it, I think, as well, or at least in the, in the modern age, this idea of these playing of roles, which Madonna does a little bit of that later, but not as sort of self-consciously. But right. that goes to your point about MTV comes along and gives someone who's already thinking in cinematic terms yeah. a, a cinematic outlet, right? He makes perfect sense in uh, so i mean to to your point about how MTV is the is coming along at the perfect time it is and MTV benefits from from catching someone like that who's already speaking their language who's thinking in terms of images as well as just music and by the way michael jackson the same way that michael jackson is a, is extraordinarily visual right yeah. and in a way that many um, rock stars are not in that. Of, and so he also catches the wave at the right, the right moment. I mean, I always remember. I, I can't remember where I read it. Some, I think it's in that history of MTV when they talk about um, Billy Squire, Yeah. Um, how he's the guy whose career is destroyed by MTV, right? Because he does that video and he's wearing some kind of effeminate out, uh, outfit, and he's supposed to be a Masculine Macho. dude, yeah, yeah, masculine dude. But so there's a guy who comes along and MTV catches him and destroys him. Why? Because he doesn't understand the language of the medium. So he's the opposite. He's the flip side of of Bowie and, and Jackson. That he doesn't he doesn't get that there's a different set of rules when you add this um, visual component to to uh, to pop music. But and the other
0: I, one that, that the other one that missed it, but not in a way that it hurt them in any way, but it they didn't embrace it and use it the way bowie did was the rolling stones because yeah very similar point in their careers to where bowie was where in and they were a bigger band and you know it's not like they needed the help at that point but you would have thought that they would have appreciated what this new medium was and used it in ways and really you look back at the videos they did and they're like eh undercover video wasn't bad but it wasn't like the Bowie videos, like "Let's Dance" and "China Girl," were freaking incredible, you know. Yeah, and then you yeah. look at uh, what a band like Dire Straits did, where you know they vaulted themselves to a whole other level because of how cool their videos were, and they'd been around yeah. for a while, you know, they'd been bouncing around. But um, yeah, it's a really—I
2: think it's, it's the most back-
0: interesting time ever for music, eighty-one MCD- to eighty-five for everything.
2: That MTV book, that oral history that was done, yeah, I've forgotten who the writers were. Uh, it's fantastic. It's just one, it's one amazing story after another.
0: Well, because uh, you also you threw in cocaine into everything else that was going <laughs> right. on.
2: Well, I mean, across the board. I mean, you, you, well, that's the other thing I was going to say. You know, when we were talking about the NBA, we said there was a time 25, 30 years ago when the conversation in the NBA was very much about injuries because. Guys got one knee injury and they were gone, or one foot injury yeah. and gone. It was also very much about drugs. So there was—it's really funny. You remove so drugs between drugs and injuries in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. The, the story, the narrative about basketball was constantly about loss. It was all about the things that never happened because David Thompson does a lot of cocaine and blows out his knee and. Uh, you know, Bill Walton breaks his foot, and what could have been if he'd stayed? And how many more championships would he so won in Portland? Of those guys, yeah. Any of the that whole? I mean, what could have? Uh, you know, uh, I'm you know the the list of extraordinary talented players. Len B- I mean, starting with Len Bias and onwards. There's no today. There's none of that today. We basically you see a talented young player, and we get to see them play out their career we don't even have we don't have an expectation that we're going to lose 25 of every bright young player who comes on the scene and the really 90s were like
0: that too that i think we lost a lot of dudes in the 90s because of uh everybody got paid too much money right away and it just yeah. it screwed all of them up like their so yeah, Dog, yeah. all those guys that was another lost generation yeah it wasn't yeah. until when they put in the rookie salary cap and then on top of it, everybody realized: all right, drugs are bad. All these different things.
2: Drugs are bad. We can fix injuries. Yeah. And you shouldn't give nineteen-year-olds twenty million dollars. Those two things come together, and the game becomes sane again. Right?
0: And, and and maybe some stable. medical advancements.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm going to let that thought bubble hang in the air. Now it's we. You always would talk about uh, Jamaica and how the capitalization rate of sprinters in Jamaica, how how Jamaica capitalized the available talent in the best possible way. And I I do feel like America has reached that point now with basketball.
2: You're not missing many basketball players. No,
0: you're not. And it's the only thing that can really hurt the basketball players at this point is AAU. I think AAU can do so much damage in so many different ways to these guys. Yeah. But other than that, it's... there
2: There was a moment in the 70s, 80s where... You could have constructed a hypothetical team of players who never made it in the NBA, who yeah. you could argue might be able to take uh, to be better than the players who played in the NBA. So if you wave a wand and you say, here's the guys we lost to drugs, injuries, being shot on the playground, what you know, or head cases, and if we magic- magically resurrect them, that team maybe has more talent than the guys playing in the league. Right? Well, you I always that?
0: Thought- Cocaine could have been like a fifty-part series because it didn't just hurt the NFL. I mean, the NBA. It, it it hurt every sport. We don't even know some of the people it hurt because they're probably not talking about it. It definitely hurt sports like tennis.
2: Wait, what's uh, the all? What's baseball. the all? What's the all cocaine team in the NBA? It. Uh, <laughs> are we gonna? Or are I, we gonna get in trouble?
0: No, I wrote about some of this stuff in my book because there there were some insane stories. Like uh, yeah, you know, I think. I think the 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 two saddest Tarpley. for, well, the two saddest for just how good they were and and people not being able to help them were John Lucas and Michael Ray Richardson. Bias is the worst because he never got to play. But yeah. I'm just talking about like Lucas been, and Michael Ray Richardson. Um, Tarpley. Tarpley's a bad. Tarpley
2: one. was a monster
0: there's a bunch of guys we probably can't mention legally that I think in the NBA circles people know about but I don't know if the public knows about but you know you think with acting and comedy mm-hmm. and music even even more damage
2: and then you have like the overlay Richard of, Pryor
0: like yeah. Richard Pryor should that that guy did not have the career he should have had yeah you know but there's a million guys like him too I mean Jesus and
2: remember the same area you overlay HIV and so you've got that's a. I mean, the, just get wiped out. Yeah, you have a. You have this big black hole in the center of American popular culture that stretches from the early '80s to the mid '90s, and it's the combination of all those things. And it's yeah. not a. There is not a creative or athletic endeavor that isn't that wasn't permanently harmed by that loss. Yeah. Um, all those things in combination. It's sort of weird to think about how um, we lived that era and we had no idea what we were missing.
0: Last thing, and then we have to go. You wanted to talk about Tiger versus Federer. Um,
2: yeah. I, I, just, I just see that we're... Here are these two guys at the end of their career, and I always lump them together in my mind, because you can make a case they're, they're the greatest of all time in their respective professions. And they the longer you look at them and sit with them and watch them, the more they diverge. They're really polar opposites. Um, you know, one is... Tiger is... Power replacing grace. Federer is grace replacing power. Tiger has just seems to have fallen off a cliff. Federer is playing it out gracefully. You know, Tiger was defined by his misbehavior. Federer is defined by his incredibly wonderful behavior. I mean, they're two very different models for what it means to be a modern uh, uh, elite athlete. And I, I, I keep wondering, are we going to go more in the Tiger direction or more in the Federer direction, right? They're very – they're, you know, it's a, it's not a simple matter of saying that Tiger is the modern form and Federer is the throwback form, which I think was the early narrative on those guys. It's different. It's very different approaches to their sports, ways of – I mean, I don't know. It's like um, – uh, and I have a kind of uh, – And both of them were in their heyday, at their peak. Both were electrifying, but in different ways. You had to be... Tiger was someone who brought... I knew nothing about golf. I still know nothing about golf, but I watched golf when Tiger was uh, at his peak because he made it accessible to me. I could understand how great he was. Federer is... To appreciate his genius, you sort of have to know something about tennis. You have to have read the David Foster Wallace piece and you have to have long conversations with tennis heads and then you understand the extraordinary ability and genius of the way he plays the game and is that you know which of those two is where we're headed
0: you left out one piece what's that Federer I think the coolest thing of Federer's career is I think he's the best tennis player ever and people I trust who know tennis more than I do or better than I do um are just adamant, like he's the best. Like, stop. Yeah. No, no, nobody else can be mentioned. Um Although McEnroe, I thought I spent time with McEnroe. I McEnroe, love- there's a
2: strong case to be made. McEnroe is the greatest innovator the sport has ever
0: seen. Yeah, he's the most creative player ever. But I, I spent some time with him. We did this Vanity Fair summit thing in the beginning of October. We just we were stuck in this room for an hour. We really hit it off, and. I loved him, but we, but he said he gets the greatest player question a lot. And for him, it's a surface. He's like, you can't just say who's the greatest player ever because you know, it depends on what the surface is because some surfaces are fast that favors this guy. And he's, so he's like, it's an impossible question. So you can't say somebody's the greatest player ever if they could get their ass kicked on clay by somebody else. So for him, it was like surface specific,
2: but what did he say? What did he say?
0: Well, he was saying Federer, but he also said Sampras on grass was insane. Yeah. You know, and he's like he, he was like as great as Federer, it would be really hard to beat any Sampras. Nobody against Sampras on grass was feeling good about that matchup. But yeah. anyway, he was saying how you know, one of the things he really appreciated about Federer and the thing that he didn't have with his own career as much was Federer had this post-prime mm-hmm. this extended prime Really after his prime, which is what we're seeing with Tom Brady now, actually, where it's like really the greatness of an athlete depends on how long their prime was. Right. So you talk about like Bill Walton's prime was a year. Yeah. But yet we still revere him because his ceiling was so high. It was so up in the air. Um, but yet Bird's prime, Bird played nine years. Um his real prime prime apex was from 84 to 87, wins the three straight MVPs, goes to the finals next year. LeBron's prime. LeBron's in year 13. Yeah. yeah. He's played as many seasons as Larry Bird did. Larry Bird retired after his 13th season. Now he came into the league five years you yeah. know, after high school. LeBron came into the league right after high school. But, um, but what LeBron does right now, I would say through the rest of the decade will determine where he goes on any list, any pyramid, any greatest player ever discussion, because these are the key moments for him. Anyway, with Federer, what was great about him was his extended post prime was so awesome.
2: He He could still, he could still win a major. He still win a major and was still
0: like fighting these guys tooth and nail and, and Djokovic and Nadal. And he's like, he was not at his apex anymore, but could still hang with these guys and potentially beat them. And and some of his greatest matches happened after his prime. Whereas you look at Tiger, two thousand eight U.S. Open, wins it with a torn ACL. That's it. Yeah, he had. There is no extended prime, you know, and yeah. his body breaks down. And why his body broke down, I think, is is a, a you know something that nobody has really talked about that much. Um, everybody said, oh, when he had the car crash, his wife, all that stuff, that's why his career fell apart. No, I think his career fell apart because he put too much muscle on his body and his body broke down. Federer yeah. was able to just navigate this amazing long career. Like, if Federer won the Wimbledon, if Federer won Wimbledon this year, would you be shocked?
2: No, I, w- I mean, he, listen, he he has, in almost every year since he last won a major, he's almost won a major. He's come within, you know, two or three Uh, uh, strokes of winning a major. I mean, the margin of difference between him and the very top players of the game is still vanishingly small. Right. So so I'm looking up,
0: he turns 35 in August. Yeah. You know, it's impossible to be in your mid-30s and battle these dudes and and play five sets and play for five hours. And, you know, so I think we're going to, I think we'll remember Tiger in this, way of like, Oh my God, that was amazing. Remember when we had the chance for him that we thought he was going to be Ali or Jordan for golf and it kind of happened, but then all of a sudden he disappeared. Like he was vaporized. Um, Federer never reached that point of an impact, but I think we'll, I think his career will be remembered in a, in a more amazed type of way. We're going to be like, Jesus.
2: Well, we're going to come to, I think it's to your point is that, uh, Maybe what will happen is that we will come to appreciate longevity far more because, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the expectation was you were over and done in whatever sports you were in by the time you were 30. Now we have these guys like LeBron and Federer who are expanding that definition. And I think that means that we are we're revising our definition of greatness and no saying we, we care a lot more about um, how long you draw out that post peak. Uh, so,
0: I mean, Federer, really, the example is Duncan. Federer won yeah. Wimbledon in 03. He beat Mark Philippoussis, And then he won again in 2012. He beat Andy Murray, which was like playing on the road, basically. Yeah. So he won Wimbledon's 10 years apart. But then was the runner-up in Wimbledon in 2014 and the runner-up at the U.S. Open in 2015.
2: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, that's in. The, that is a, and it
0: probably is going to be one of the people involved this time around. You know, I, I think, I think we we could see another Tiger type. I think this Jordan Spieth might be Tiger.
2: I think that you need to um, when you go back and you redo the book of basketball, yeah, and your rankings of the all time great basketball players. This is this has to be a much more explicit focus in your rankings. Longevity longevity because then it it changes a whole lot when you start thinking about these players in those terms
0: yeah but you and i have we've talked about this in the past though that there's so many more advantages for the modern guys Mm -hmm. i mean i think if larry bird was in this generation he would have played for 19 20 years
2: but you can still go back and you can see you can credit people for longevity within the context of their era right
1: like you don't so you think can
2: still do that kind of you can. contextualizing.
0: Yeah, you'd almost have to curve up. But like to me, Jerry West versus Kobe. Most people think Kobe's would be higher on any list, right? But in a two guard list. And I, I, I have to agree. He, he had a longer the longevity is what pushes him over Jerry West. But Jerry West played from nineteen sixty one to nineteen seventy four and and did That's stuff an amazing like dream. You know, he had some injuries in the last couple of years. And if you had injuries in your mid thirties and you're a basketball player, that was it. You they just take you behind the stadium and shoot you basically. Yeah. And uh if you just flip their careers, Kobe wouldn't have played longer than Jerry West did. But Jerry West might have played for twenty years. It's so tough to say twenty years of Kobe was more impressive than fourteen years of Jerry West. When Jerry West was <laughs> as we've talked in the past, riding coach. Tape, taping his own knee, putting his own ice on guys are yeah. smoking next to him at halftime. He's eating a cheeseburger before a game. Like how can you compare that? No arthroscopic surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are you working on? Anything?
2: Uh, just my, uh, working on my podcast. Uh, oh. business history. I'm um, off on. to interview Rick Barry this weekend.
0: Oh, that's, don't say hi to him for me. He hates <laughs> me.
2: That's what, although I reread your, uh, your entry in the book of basketball and Rick Barry, and uh, actually, you you were much more respectful towards him than I had remembered. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing is, I'll only say this, and we, I mean, we are running way, way, way. But um, you, I, I asked you this question in an email. I want you to, to tell me the answer. You point out that he wasn't uh, widely liked by his teammates. He was hated. But, but nor was Isaiah. Isaiah was hated so much they didn't want him on the dream team. Like That's a level of hate that goes way beyond. There is no one in that era, in Rick Barry's era, who wouldn't have wanted him on there. If you're putting together a dream team in 19-whatever, 70. Well, I don't
0: agree. I, Rick Barry really bugged people.
2: But but to go to the extraordinary length of saying, as they did with Isaiah, we don't want him. We're- those were... Those were-
0: Opponents saying that, though, though, he, like Isaiah. If you watch the Bad Boys documentary, the Pistons teammates loved Isaiah. Isaiah was like the leader of that team. I don't know if they that, had that. The uh,
2: I I find that I find that thing about Isaiah that is to me of all of the there are many troubling things about Isaiah. That's the most troubling because it's one thing. Sure, you. You 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 have a competitor, a fierce competitor you play against. He rubs you the wrong way, but you know, you say that's because we're in competition. Right. I'll give him that. I still I want him on my side. They didn't want him on they didn't want him on their side.
0: But it wasn't a they, it was Jordan. Jordan was like, I'm not playing if, if Isaiah's in the team. This uh, is just a fact. He's just like, I'm not playing. So yeah, I mean yeah. you could have Isaiah in the team, but then I'm not going to be on the team. That's it. It wasn't a they. It was just him. They hated each other.
2: You got it. You got it. Actually, that's what of makes me love Jordan even more. But you know, Rick Barry.
0: <laughs> I think the players voted in 1974 for the MVP. Rick Barry was like fifth, and he had by far the best season. Like you look at, it, like he was on the best team. He was 30 points a game, six assists. Like he was the best passing forward, other than Bird. Rick Barry's basketball career. I always have that, that thing if, if you if you just had a computer simulate somebody's career 10 times, how would it have played out? I think his played out like the, the worst of the 10 possibilities because like, he went to the ABA yeah. had to sit out a year. He blew out his knee. That cost him another year. Like, he had all these obstacles against him. And then for this one year, it all came together in 74 and they won the title. They sweeped the bullets. What a,
2: what a player. I
0: mean, one of the best forwards ever, and nobody would say that anymore. But
2: extraordinary. But but, I, I give him more. I give him more. uh, uh, I mean, I'm really looking forward to meeting him. But I give him. I'm much. I think I'm much more accepting of of, um, of difficult personalities at elite levels. I just think, on one level, they're all. If you're going to be really, really, really good at something, you're going to, by definition, be difficult.
0: But, now, but but basketball is the worst sport to be difficult in because that's the sport that relies the most on the chemistry with your teammates. You can be yeah. difficult in baseball because it's an individual sport. But yeah. I think you're seeing that now with Houston, where they have this team built around these two guys who are just a, you know atypical Harden yeah. and, and Howard. And whereas, like you look at the Warriors, and your leaders are Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Mm-hmm. And you have Steve Kerr as your coach. Like it's no wonder, like, the spirit of that team is so incredible. Like those guys are yeah. they're just awesome teammates. Anyone would want to play with those guys, you know? Yeah. yeah. Draymond to me is I, I, I'm I know we have to go. I just love Draymond Green. Like I I told I was talking to Zach on the phone the other day. Zach and I just do our podcast now just on the phone. We just have phone calls. We yeah. don't release them. Uh it's really sad. It's tragedy. But uh I was saying I Draymond would be my number two MVP because First of all, he played the best game I've seen all year in Boston, where he just single-handedly beat the Celtics, yeah. um, and did more and just cared more than anyone I've seen in a game all year. Like he just, he wanted it so bad. I guess Westbrook's like that every game, but Westbrook's an alien. But Draymond, he's so competitive, and he his competitiveness just game to game is what fuels that team. Like that team really wants to win seventy five games, and it's because of him. And you saw it last night in Denver; he's not there. And it's just that that edge just isn't there when he's not there. That yeah. guy is the alpha dog in the league right now other than Westbrook. You know, he just stalks yeah. the court. He really wants to like, he treats it like a boxing match. Yeah. But uh, when you think of that versus somebody like Rick Barry, who's this mercurial guy who's super talented, by all accounts, difficult, hard to relate to. Um, and they kind of coexisted with him that one Warrior season, then it fell apart the next season. You got to ask him about it. I think he's I mean, very defensive I mean, about it. Yeah, I had him. What did I have him like twenty fifth? I had him high.
2: You had him high. Uh, no, you absolutely had him high. No, I, I, uh, um, it was my quarrel is with some of the people who are ahead of him, but. Uh,
0: <clears throat> I'll do it at some point It'll It'll be uh, yeah, after my third divorce After a
2: couple <laughs> failed shows
0: That's when it'll happen uh, Thanks to HBO Now for sponsoring today's podcast You don't need cable or satellite to watch HBO anymore Just download the HBO Now app Start your free one month trial today Streaming right now on HBO Now The new Mad Max movie Just got, got nominated for an Oscar Coming in April, Game of Thrones And at some point in 2016 Maybe this podcast, who knows uh, Do yourself a favor, download the HBO Now app Thanks to Squarespace, thanks to Stamps.com, and thanks to SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor of the BS Podcast. And Channel 33. Uh, Subscribe to both podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Uh, Channel 33, Chris Ryan and I did... Oh, no, we did that for for the BS Podcast. Chris Ryan and I broke down heat for like an hour. I loved that. You heard that one.
2: Oh, so fantastic.
0: That's my favorite podcast I've done since October. The
2: Joe the Juravicious
0: here. reference. Joe He's Juravicious, ready. yeah, Joe reference.
2: Spoiler alert. There's a reference to Joe Jurovicious.
0: Malcolm, uh, thank you. This was awesome. Always fun to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Bill. We about this bitch.
0: Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here, close your eyes,
1: and picture me rolling.